Last time we spoke, which was quite a while ago, the Allies had given up Rangoon and fled north to try and secure the Burma Road. We also talked about the first and second battle of the Java Sea. Kor Dorman said, Ich fahran Fochmeg. But despite their courage, the Abda strike force was defeated twice and Dorman would go down with his flagship, Diruta. After the Japanese had neutralized the seas, both their eastern and western assault forces landed and captured the very heart of the Dutch East Indies, that of Java. The Malay barrier was smashed, Abda was dead, and the first phase of the Japanese war plan was now complete. Now the IGN could be unleashed upon a whole new theater. While the Pacific had been dominated by the IGN to this point, another ocean lay just west of it, and the time was right for Japan to enter the scene. This episode is the Indian Ocean Raid. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and after all that, you are still hungry for some mystery content? Why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. I have episodes dedicated to most of the wars that formed the Asia-Pacific, going back as far as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, and more recently, some pieces on the campaign in Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. So, as I am writing this very podcast, I expect the two previous podcast interviews to have occurred. Well, I hope so, given that's how we scheduled it. Anyways, it's been a while, so to refresh everyone's memory, last time we spoke, the Japanese tried frantically to encircle the British forces at Rangoon, but ended up in their haste completely running past what was the entire British military, making its escape to the north. Generals Alexander and Slim had raised Rangoon before making a covert escape north to link up with the CEF. The Japanese that had rushed to encircle Rangoon found it ablaze and only then realized their prey had given them the slip. As noted by General Slim, as the Allied forces found the Japanese roadblock unoccupied after several attacks upon it trying to break out, he said, quote, All the Japanese commander had to do then was to keep his roadblock in position and with the rest of his troops attack the 40-mile column strung out along the road. Nothing could have saved the British, tied as they were by their mechanical transport to the ribbon of road. End of quote. General Alexander's troops continued their retreat northwards to Throm the entire force being strung out across 40 miles, like he said. They miraculously were not attacked by Japanese aircraft. It was extremely lucky, 
as aircraft would have decimated the vulnerable troops. As was so typical of the Japanese campaigns during the first six months of the Pacific War, the IGA infantry and tanks had advanced too fast and too far ahead of their own logistical supply chain. For a few precious weeks, the Japanese rolling advance came to a grinding halt. And with that halt came a similar effect to their air support. Lieutenant General Hideyoshi Obata's fighter Sentai had run out of their long-range extension drop tanks. These are fuel tanks that can be ejected after use to allow aircrafts to go further distances. It was going to take some weeks to repair the Mingladon airport in Rangoon so the Sentai could be moved forward to it. The new main airfield was Magui, near the oil fields at Yanyang Yuan, to the southwest of Mandalay. By this point, the Allied air power in Burma, the AVG, and RAF had been undergoing a war of attrition for quite a long time. After Rangoon was lost, the Allies had only 38 aircraft left to be moved to Magwe. Amongst them were 8 P-40s of the AVG and 15 Hurricanes for the RAF. The Japanese discovered this by March the 9th, but were unable to attack it immediately because of the logistical issue. Then on March the 20th, Lieutenant General Hideyoshi Obata began a Central Burma attack campaign. The first day would see a force of 80 fighters, 70 bombers, and 40 fighter bombers sent to destroy the RAF and AVG, who had been the very thorn in the JAAF's side. I think it's a good time to mention to the audio listeners... Yours truly wrote two episodes for Kings and Generals that, by my calculation, should have come out in the last two weeks. One of them is about the Flying Tigers, which will give a ton more background information on the AVG. I strongly recommend checking it out at Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Anyways, on that same day, an RAF Blemheim flown by Dan Hoyle spotted a massive buildup of Japanese aircraft around Rangoon and reported to Magway, quote, Prepare to be attacked tomorrow morning or at dawn. End of quote. On March the 21st, the 12th Sentai's Mitsubishi Ki-21 Sally bombers hit Magway followed by the 98th Sentai. The Allied Air Force launched to intercept them, and the Allied pilots noted every time they hit and damaged a Sally, the bombers would move further inside their formation while other planes took their place in their flanks. 31 Nates from the 1st and 11th Sentai recently had arrived to Rangoon and joined the 98th Sentai. Hurricane pilot Kenneth Hemingway of the 17th Squadron was stunned by the sight of the approaching Japanese armada, recalling, quote, Wherever I looked, I could pick out bunches of weaving Jap fighters protecting formation after formation of bombers. End of quote. General Obata's wave of attackers were intense. The first wave to come and hit them was the 8th Sentai consisting of 17 Kawasaki Ki-48 Lily Bombers and 10 Mitsubishi Ki-30N Light Bombers. Altogether, Obata tossed 
151 bombers and fighters against the Allies on March 21st for that air raid. One AVG pilot named Cliff Groh, who had recently arrived to Burma, achieved a rare success in his outdated Tomahawk fighter. He brawled with the Sallies, and then on his way back to base, he came face to face with the Nate. I charged my guns, and I made an approach from his port side. I gave a deflection shot, and I fired several bursts before he turned towards me. I kept firing burst after burst until just before I passed him. I saw the plane lurch, but dived down in case. As I pulled out of my dive, I turned and I saw the Jap plane crash. End of quote. Pilot Cliff Grow had shot down and killed Major Tadashi Okabe, leader of the 11th Sentai and a veteran of the Battle of Kalkin Gol. On March 22nd, Obata launched even further attacks. Commander of the Flying Tigers, Claire Lee Chenault, received by radio from Ole Olsen over at Magway Airfield. We received absolutely no warning. The runways were rendered unserviceable, communications were broken down, and a number of aircraft, both bombers and fighters, were destroyed on the ground. One shark badly burned up, forehead badly. Three planes left now, repairing and possibly have two others left to fly away. End of quote. Between March 20th to the 23rd, Obata tossed 271 aircraft against the Allies. The AVG and the RAF had some success against the evaders, but Magway was bombed to pebbles. By March the 23rd, the jig was up for the AVG. Chenault ordered them to get the hell out of Burma. Technicians worked throughout the night to repair four tomahawks to get them in good enough condition to make the 300-mile flight to Lao Wing on the China-Burma border. The RAF, in turn, also made their exit and managed to get eight hurricanes to Akyab in West Burma. Obata's officers claimed over 120 Allied aircraft were destroyed in that two-day attack, extremely over-exaggerating and making false claims. But regardless, the objective of wiping out the Allied air capability in Burma was certainly complete. Back to the men on the ground, having escaped north, it was now planned for the CEF to hold the Japanese on a front south of Mandalay while the Burma army would attempt to hold a front along the Irrawaddy River Valley, further to the west. Unfortunately, the speed of the IGA's advance gave the Allies little time to prepare strong defenses. The IGA had managed to capture numerous British trucks during their advance, and they were using them to speed up the transport of their own forces along the north-south road networks. With the retreat of the AVG and the RAF, the Burma Corps would have to trek the remainder of their 900-mile retreat with no air support. They were really sitting ducks. General Slim noted there were not so many casualties to Japanese air attacks, but, quote, The effect of morale, while not as great as might have been expected, at first was serious, but later 
The troops seemed in some ways to become accustomed to constant air attack and to adjust themselves to it. End of quote. The retreating allies were hampered by a flood of refugees, estimated to be around 900,000 people. Alongside this, many Burmese deserted the Burma Rifles to join the Burma Independence Army, which was working to harry the retreating British forces. As many as 100 refugees poured into Mandalay, collapsing the city's administration. It certainly did not help that Japanese bombing raids were uninterrupted due to the Allied aircraft being non-existent now in Burma. This in turn lost even more Burmese to the Independence Army, as their respect for the British was, well, falling apart. It will be in Mandalay, where many decisions are made between Stilwell and Chiang Kai-shek. But for now, we are turning our focus to a new theater of war for the Pacific, that of the Indian Ocean. Going all the way back to March the 19th, the Japanese began Operation U, which was the transport of units to Rangoon to help with the Burma campaign. The 56th and 18th Divisions were the first to arrive to help reinforce General Aida's 15th Army. Over 134 transports were used in four convoys supported by Admiral Ozawa's fleet of five heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 12 destroyers, and the aircraft carrier Ryujo. The first convoy made it to Rangoon by March the 24th, and the last one would make it for April the 28th. Now, Admiral Ozawa's force was not only in the area to help transport men and supplies to Rangoon, the IGN had finally decided to perform operations in the Indian Ocean. The first major operation was going to be a naval invasion of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, a small group of islands situated in the Bay of Bengal, south of Burma. They housed the British naval port of Port Blair, which held a garrison of 300 Sikh soldiers led by 23 British officers. The British had attempted to send a Gurkha detachment of the 16th Indian Brigade, but they were recalled after the fall of Rangoon. The British at that point pretty much wrote Port Blair off, as it was seen to be just impossible to defend it logistically. The invasion of the islands was carried out by the Hayashi Detachment, consisting of the 2nd Battalion of the 56th Regiment and the 18th Division under Captain Hayashi. There would also be the 12th Special Base Force, those being the Marines, under Captain Kawasaki Harumi. The invaders departed Penang Island on March the 20th, escorted by the 3rd Squadron of Rear Admiral Hashimoto Shintaro, consisting of two light cruisers, six destroyers, and the 1st Minesweeper Division. On March the 23rd, the amphibious assault on Port Blair, Ross Island, and the western coast of Snake Island achieved complete surprise. The Sikh militia at Port Blair offered no resistance, as they were outnumbered and, quite frankly, outgunned. The militia was disarmed, and in turn, many of them would join the Indian National Army. The British officers were sent to POW camps in Singapore. After seizing Port Blair, the Hayashi unit was sent to Havelock Island, where they found no defenders. 
Then other units were sent to Port Cornwallis, Stewart Sound, the Elpton Stone, and Colebrook Islands. Mop-up operations lasted until about March the 27th, and with that, the successful capture of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. While the taking of the islands was quite bloodless, the occupational years would be another story entirely. The population of the islands in 1942 was around 40,000, with three to 5,000 being indigenous peoples, several hundred Europeans, and the rest Indian. Despite there being zero resistance to the invasion, the Japanese began their operations with a high level of brutality. The first victim of the occupation came on the fourth day of the Japanese landings. A young man named Zulfikar Ali shot an air gun at some Japanese who were stealing his chickens, and they soon hunted the man down. After 24 hours of hiding, he was captured and marched in front of the Browning Club, where they broke his arms and shot him publicly. A cement memorial now stands on the spot where this man was killed. The Japanese arrested eight senior officials in Port Blair and forced them to dig pits up until only their heads would show. Once they were done, they were shot and bayoneted. A British man was publicly beheaded because he had talked to a colleague upon being arrested. Most of the British officials, including officers, were sent to POW camps in Singapore, as I had mentioned. Korean and Malay comfort women were brought over for the Japanese garrison, and they also made the local women comfort girls. Forced labor was used to build a new airfield, and arrests and torture and murder were performed on the populace for crimes such as spying. The Japanese targeted many influential members of the populace, such as Narayan Rao, the superintendent of the police, Hidur Singh, the deputy superintendent, Subedar Sub Singh, a military policeman, and Dr. Suhinda Nag, who were all executed. The Indian independence members who were trying to do their very best to mitigate the suffering of the people, became increasingly nervous with the rampant abuse and murder of influential people in the islands, and they ceased to engage much in their nationalist activity. In 1943, the commander of the garrison, Colonel Joichi Renosukai, and the chief of police, Mitsubashi, well, both these men had served at Nanking, they began a reign of terror. 600 people were arrested, tortured, and many of them murdered. In December of 1943, the Japanese proclaimed they were handing control of the islands to the Assad Hind government. This is the Free India Movement. Under the authority of Sabhas Chandra Bose, Bose visited Port Blair and appointed governors and administrators and such. Countless members of the movement tried to tell Bose about the rampant torture, murder, and suffering, but all of them failed to get it past their Japanese guards. After Bose left on January the 30th of 1944, 44 Indian civilians and many members of the movement were executed by the Japanese on suspicion of spying. 
In truth, the IGN never actually handed control over to the Assad Hind. It was all just a charade. The worst atrocities came at the ending point of the war. Food had become more and more scarce, so the Japanese decided to simply get rid of the old and unemployable. On August 13th of 1945, 300 Indians were loaded onto three boats and taken to one of the smaller uninhabited islands. When the boats reached the coast of that island, the Indians were kicked overboard and a third of them drowned or were eaten by sharks, and the others would swim to the island to starve to death. When the British rescued them six weeks later, 12 men were left alive with hundreds of skeletons littering the island. 800 other civilians would be taken to another uninhabited island, simply left on the beach, until 19 Japanese troops came ashore and began to shoot and bayonet allegedly every single one of them. By August of 1945, as many as 30,000 out of the 40,000 people of that population were killed. The Japanese Vice Admiral Teizu Hara and Major General Tamanori Seito surrendered the islands to Lieutenant Colonel Nathu Singh of the 7th Rajputs on August the 15th of 1945. It was the only place where a large-scale surrender of the Japanese was made to Indian forces. Another truly horrifying event for the common people who had to endure it. Now we are going to focus on new operations within the Indian Ocean. After the bombing of Darwin and the operations of the Kido Butai in the South Pacific, Admiral Yamamoto began plans to conduct a surprise attack against the island of Ceylon. Yamamoto sought since February the 14th to cause long-term damage to the island's facilities, thus harming the relationship between Britain and India, hoping also to destroy the British Pacific Fleet at Ceylon. Alongside this, Admiral Ozawa planned to conduct merchant raids in the Bay of Bengal, with the objective of threatening allied shipping lanes from the Indian Ocean to Calcutta. This would also dissuade the British from trying to counterattack against the recently acquired Andaman Islands. All of this accumulated into what is known as Operation Sea. Having supported the conquest of the Dutch East Indies, Nagumo's Kido Butai would depart the Celebes Islands on March the 26th to venture into the Indian Ocean. By the way, one of the last aircraft to leave Java, holding 35 passengers, was a flying boat taking off from Bandung, which would arrive in Ceylon. Aboard was Admiral Helfich, who said, quote, I felt like a raw ensign. End of quote. So, if Helfich thought he was escaping the Japanese onslaught at long last... He was gravely mistaken. Before the Kido Butai made it into the Indian Ocean, as I mentioned, Admiral Jizoburu Ozawa showed up with six cruisers and his light aircraft carrier Ryujo as a diversionary force to attack the shipping in the Bay of Bengal. Following him soon would be the Kido Butai, now bolstered by the 5th Carrier Division. However, in the meantime, there was a small operation taking place. 
Admiral Takahashi planned an invasion of Christmas Island, which is just due south of Java. The aim of the invasion was to secure its valuable phosphate mines. A small fleet led by Rear Admiral Hara Kenzaburo was appointed to carry out the task, designated Operation X. He had with him three light cruisers, two destroyers, and 850 troops. For the British, the situation was, well, not good at all. Vice Admiral James Somerville was in charge of the Eastern Fleet as Admiral Joffrey Leighton was reappointed Commander-in-Chief of Ceylon. His force was formidable, including three aircraft carriers, five battleships, seven cruisers, 16 destroyers, and seven submarines. You are probably thinking, well, wow, that is quite a large force. But take into account, he's performing operations within the entire Indian Ocean. Now, because reports were coming in that the IGN was about to conduct activity in the Indian Ocean, Somerville decided to move his fleet to Port T, an isolated secret island base on the Adu Atoll in the Maldive Archipelag. Somerville divided his fleet into two groups, the faster Task Force A, consisting of battleship Warspite, aircraft carriers Formidable and Indomitable, heavy cruisers Cornwall and Dortshire, light cruisers Emerald and Enterprise, destroyers Paladin, Panther, Hotspur, and Foxhound, and the Australian destroyers Napier and Nestor. Force A was under the direct command of Somerville. And then there was the slower-moving Force B, consisting of battleships Resolution, Remilies, Royal Sovereign, and Revenge, light carrier Hermes, light cruisers Caledon and Dragon, Dutch light cruiser Jacob van Heemskrik, destroyers Arrow, Decoy, Fortune, Griffin, and Scout. There was also the Australian destroyers Norman and Vampire, and the Dutch destroyer Isaac Sewers. Force B was under the command of Rear Admiral Algernon Willis. And on paper, the Eastern Fleet was very sizable, but some of the warships were very outdated mostly found in Force B, and many of their crew were quite untrained. After the collapse of Abducon, the British focused their attention on the Indian Ocean as the United States was now taking command over the entire Pacific theater. British codebreakers had successfully gathered intel on the incoming IGN raid, causing Somerville to be on high alert. However, the British intelligence was old, and held the date for the IGN Operation C to begin on April the 1st, and their assessment of the IGN force strength was inaccurate. They had only identified two aircraft carriers. Thus, Somerville was expecting to fight a much smaller force on an incorrect date. For the defense of Ceylon, the RAF reinforced the island with 136 aircraft, there was originally eight ferry swordfish torpedo bombers, and they were then reinforced with four more swordfish, 14 Bristol Blenheim bombers, seven PBY Catalina flying boats, 44 ferry Fulmar fighters, and 67 Hurricane fighters. These were all under the command of Air Vice Marshal John Delbiac. 
Over in Christmas Island, there was only a small garrison of 27 Punjabs and four British men with a single six-inch gun mounted on the beach under the command of Captain Williams. Prior to the invasion, a group of Punjab troops who had read some Japanese propaganda talking about the liberation of India from British rule began a mutiny. On March the 11th, they shot and killed Captain Williams and the other four British men, Sergeant Giles, Cross, and Gunners Thurgood and Tate, tossing their bodies into the sea. They then locked up the district officer and a few European inhabitants on the island. They did all of this not realizing there was an impending Japanese invasion force on the way. And at dawn of March the 31st, a dozen Japanese bombers hit a radio station on Christmas Island. And then they saw the mutineers signaling their intent to surrender by raising a white flag. The 850 Japanese troops came ashore, and the mutineers received them warmly, allowing them to seize the island, its battery, and its phosphate facilities. However, the invaders soon learnt that there was the presence of an American submarine, the Sea Wolf, and soon sent aircraft to hunt it down. At 9.40 a.m., the USS Sea Wolf fired four torpedoes at the cruiser Naka, but they all missed. The Sea Wolf then disappeared and escaped until the following morning, where at 6.50 a.m., it fired another three torpedoes, this time at the cruiser Natori, but they all missed again. That very evening, the Sea Wolf showed up yet again and fired two more torpedoes against the Nara, this time hitting her starboard side, near her number one boiler. The damage was bad enough to cause the Nara to be towed back all the way to Singapore by the Natori, as the Sea Wolf managed to escape yet again, and for good this time. The IGN would depth charge the area for almost nine hours, trying to take her down. Following the occupation of the island, the new Japanese garrison tried to put the Chinese and Malays to work on the island, but they all managed to escape further inland. Thus, the mutineers were forced into labor and were employed to clean storage bins. Probably not what the mutineers had expected. Oh, and after the war, almost all of them were arrested for the mutiny and sentenced to death. But by the time that process was kicking, India had become an independent nation and they would all end up doing penal service between Pakistan and India. Now, while that small incident was done with, over in Ceylon, the British forces were ridden with anxiety, expecting a Japanese attack at any moment's notice. The anxiety was so high, allegedly, an Australian unit saw a very large sea turtle come ashore and reported that it was a Japanese amphibious vehicle that was about to attack the island. Somerville had deployed his Force A to patrol on March the 30th, expecting to catch the incoming IGN invasion force at any moment. Yet, to his surprise, there was no enemy fleet to be found. For over two days, Force A swept east by night and west by day, eagerly awaiting any reports from reconnaissance aircraft, and yet still no IGN force was to be seen. 
Meanwhile, Admiral Ozawa's strike force with carrier Ryujo had departed Murgi on April the 1st and was heading into the Bay of Bengal as Somerville's Force A began its return to Port T by April the 2nd to refuel. Force B somewhat split up at this point with cruisers Cornwall and Dorsetshire sailing for Colombo while aircraft carrier Hermes and destroyer Vampire sailed for Chukamali to prepare for a potential raid against Madagascar. On April the 4th, Force A had just arrived back at the Adu Atoll when a British PBY Catalina piloted by Leonard Birchell spotted a IGN carrier, Task Force 580 kilometers southeast of Ceylon. Nagumo quickly tossed 18 fighters at the PBY, shooting it down, but not before Leonard Birchell was able to report it in. However, he was unable to accurately report the size of the force in time. That colossal force held the aircraft carriers Akagi, Hiryu, Soryu, Shokaku, Zoikaku, and Ayujo. Somerville was in a terrible situation. As soon as he heard the report, he took Force A to sail out again and meet the enemy head on. But Force B was not done refueling, nor ready to fight. To make matters worse, Force B was much slower and could not even hope to make it in time for the battle. Now the two task forces were separated, right as the enemy had finally shown up. The following day of Easter Sunday, Nagumo launched 125 bombers alongside 36-0 fighter escorts led by Commander Mitsuo Fuchida at 6 a.m. 36 VAL dive bombers, 53 Kate torpedo bombers, and 36 Zeros took to the air targeting Colombo. Soon, the force was flying right over the RAF base at Ramalana Airfield. Faulty warning procedures meant none of the RAF had even scrambled to meet them. It turns out, ironically, similar to what happened during Pearl Harbor, the air raid came on a Sunday, and the British radar technicians were not operating due to routine maintenance work. The largest shock, however, was on the part of the Japanese, who expected the British Eastern Fleet to be anchored at the port, but they were gone. The Japanese had only found a couple of ships. Fortunately for the lives of the RAF pilots, Fuchida's first wave literally flew right past the RAF No. 3 Squadron's hangars at Radamala Airport, leaving them completely unmolested. Fuchida's first target was the naval base at Colombo, and thus he did not order his pilots to attack any other targets beforehand. At 10.45 a.m., Fuchida ordered the attack to commence and they began to bomb the airbase, tankers, and merchantmen. The merchant cruiser Hector and the Norwegian tanker Soil and a very old destroyer named Tenodos were sunk very quickly as the RAF appeared overhead to face the raiders. 36 Hurricanes and 6 Fulmars engaged the enemy in dogfights, taking down 7 Japanese aircraft. And at the same time, Six swordfish were just arriving en route for Trichotomoly, and all of them were caught up in the dogfights, and they were shot down. During the air battle, Fuchida's first wave lost 18 aircraft. Many were shot down by intense anti-aircraft fire. 
though the IGN would only admit to losing 5 during the war. The RAF ended up losing 27 aircraft in all. The Sri Lankan writer Ariadasa Ratnasinghe recalled that the Easter Sunday raid was like, quote, Japanese aircraft flew in close formation over Colombo and dropped bombs at different places. The air battle lasted for nearly half an hour. The Allied forces, warned of the danger, were able to shoot down some of the enemy aircraft, which fell on land and sea. End of quote. One Japanese bomb fell off target and hit the Muluriyawa Mental Hospital, killing some inmates. It seems the Japanese pilot had misidentified the building to be the Echelon Barracks. Another bomb had hit near the Maradana Railway Station, and these types of misses killed and wounded many civilians. To try and prevent hospitals from being hit, many had painted the top of the buildings with giant red crosses. By 1.25, Fuchida and the first wave had returned to their respective carriers, but Nagumo's reconnaissance planes had just discovered the British cruisers Dorsetshire and Cornwall, fleeing towards the southwest. So Nagumo suspended a second assault over Colombo to instead attack the two British cruisers, using aircraft from the Zuikaku and Shokaku. Lieutenant Commander Igusa led a wave of 18 fighters and 54 bombers which rushed upon the helpless Dorsetshire and Cornwall, taking them by complete surprise, and bombed both cruisers, scoring multiple hits. Both cruisers sank within minutes, killing some 424 British sailors, but later rescuing a total of 1,122 lives. Once again, the Kido Butai proved its deadliness. Sir Winston Churchill would later write of the event, Nothing like this has been seen in the Mediterranean, in, in all the conflicts with the German and Italian air forces. End of quote. And if you'd like me to stop these hilariously bad impressions, you can go straight to my personal channel at the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube and complain. Nagumo being a straight-to-the-books, old-fashioned admiral with quite the sense for caution, now judged that in view of the British cruiser's movements, enemy aircraft would soon be deployed to hunt down his task force. So he pulled back first southeast, then peeled up north to try and hide from any potential enemies before he would commence another attack on Chukomale. Simultaneously, Nagumo's reconnaissance planes fanned out searching bitterly to find Force A. And in the late afternoon, just before sunset, at 4.55, and again at 6 p.m., two Royal Navy Alpacores operating from the aircraft carriers Formidable and Indomitable made contact with the Kido Butai. One of the Albacores was shot down immediately by fighters, and the other was severely damaged before they could make an accurate report of their sightings. Somerville was furious. He had planned a Albacore night raid against the Kido Butai, which was going to be using some new ASV radar equipment, but he simply could not find the enemy. Just imagine if Somerville was able to pull that off, by the way. 
a night raid against Japanese carriers using radar? Now that would have been a hell of a battle. Regardless, Somerville feared that the invaders would next target Port T, so he hastily made a return to the Aru Atoll after failing to find and hit the enemy once again. At the same time, the Easter raid was concluding, Admiral Ozawa commenced his own little raid in the Bay of Bengal. Ozawa divided his force into three groups, launching his aircraft from Ryujo, which were able to sink the HMIS Indus off the coast of Akyab, alongside five merchantmen and other ships, making for a total kill count of 23 vessels at an approximate tonnage of 137,000. Aircraft from Ryujo would follow this up by bombing the small ports of Co-Canada and Visa Gapatam on the southeastern coast of India, doing some limited damage. Alongside this, five more vessels were sunk by Japanese submarine operations off India's western coast. It was quite a large victory for the smaller force, and Ozawa speedily made his escape back to the Andaman Islands, and then for Singapore by April 11th. However, the most damaging engagement was yet to come. On April the 8th, after finding no trace of Force A, Nagumo prepared to attack Tricomoli. Just like with Colombo, the Kido Butai was discovered by a PBY Catalina, and the British were alerted. The British quickly ordered all ships that they could to flee the scene before the incoming attack, including the carrier HMS Hermes, which slugged away at a snail's pace. At 10.55 a.m. on April the 9th, Fuchida led 91 bombers and 38 Zero fighters out for the attack. The bombers rained hell upon the port, as the Zero fighter escorts got into dogfights with 17 Hurricanes and 6 Volmars, who lifted off to meet them head-on. The Japanese pilots attacked the Chukamali fuel tanks. One Japanese pilot deliberately crashed his plane into one of the giant fuel tanks, due north of the China Bay Aerodome. Inside that aircraft were three pilots, Shigenori Watanabe, Tokia Goto, and Sutomu Toshira. After carefully circling the area, they plunged into the tank, igniting their own funeral pyre in a blaze of fire. That fire would last for seven straight days. The China Bay Air Base and port were completely smashed by bombs. The monitor HMS Erebus was hit and damaged. The merchant ship SS Sagang, carrying aircraft and ammunition, took many hits. It was lit on fire and had to be abandoned. Eight hurricanes and a single Fulmar were shot down, all at the cost of just four Japanese aircraft. Over 700 people would lose their lives during this raid. The Japanese were not done, however, as they soon realized many of the warships had just fled the port and began fanning out to hunt them all down. During the chaos, the British had sent a counterattack, nine Blemheim bombers of the RAF No. 11 Squadron, which would make the first ever Allied air attack against the Kido Butai. The squadron managed to slip past the detection of the Kido Butai rather miraculously, 
The Blemheims took the Japanese completely by surprise and at 11,000 feet unloaded their bombs, all targeting the Akagi, with each missing its target to their despair. The rather humiliated Cap Zero fighters soon pounced upon the threat and shot down four Blemheims before they could escape, and they did lose two Zeros for their efforts. Meanwhile, the British carrier HMS Hermes, a small World War I-era carrier that had been ordered in 1917 and commissioned in 1924, had left the port of Chicomoli, leaving behind 12 swordfish to help defend the island. The old carrier fled from Ceylon, hoping simply to slip by unnoticed. But she was spotted by a Japanese reconnaissance plane just off of Batikaloa. The defenseless carrier was attacked by 85 Val dive bombers. Marooned without escorts nor any aircraft, Hermes was a sitting and very slow little duck. The Hermes took over 40 500-pound bomb hits before she sank off the coast of Batikaloa, killing 307 of her crew, including Captain Onslow. The nearby HMS Vampire was smashed likewise, sinking and losing eight of her crew. A local hospital ship named the Vita managed to rescue 600 men from the waters. Without a break, the Japanese bombers attacked nearby ships and they soon sank the corvette Hollycock and the auxiliary Athelstone, the tanker British sergeant, and a cargo ship named Norvikin. Two Fulmars running a screen for the ships managed to take down four bombers. Running low on fuel, the Kido Butai exited the Indian Ocean through the Strait of Malacca and then turned north for home. Sir Winston Churchill said of the raids, and don't worry, I'm not going to do an impression, quote, The most dangerous moment of the war and the one which caused me the greatest alarm was when the Japanese fleet was heading for Ceylon and the naval base there. The capture of Ceylon, the consequent control of the Indian Ocean, and the possibility at the same time of a German conquest of Egypt would have closed the ring and the future would have been black. End of quote. The Indian Ocean Raid had demonstrated the IGN's superiority in carry operations and exposed the unprofessional manner in which the RAF operated in the East. However, the Royal Navy was not defeated and it remained a strong presence in the Indian Ocean. Altogether, in carrier and submarine attacks, the IGN had destroyed 23 merchant vessels five Royal Navy warships, including that poor World War I old carrier Hermes. It was a heavy blow to the Royal Navy and had left Burma even more isolated. The British feared the IGN might return with troop ships and stage an invasion of Ceylon or even India. In the geopolitics of World War II, the Indian Ocean was the crux of a large issue it was the main artery of global allied supply lines, critical for China, North Africa, 
and even the Soviet Union. It held control over the Persian Gulf, which even in that time period was recognized as the largest oil reserve in the entire world. The British were biting their nails, and by early April, they would ask the Americans to send naval reinforcements to the Indian Ocean, a request that Admiral King would refuse. By late April, U.S. intelligence confirmed the IGN had no further operations planned for the Indian Ocean, but this did not stop the Allies from having nightmares of a possible German-Japanese link-up in the Persian Gulf to chokehold to the oil-producing region of the world. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry after all that, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Thus, the Indian Ocean raid was now over. It left the British feeling insecure. Burma was more isolated than ever, and the Japanese victory disease ever increased. Things simply seemed to crumble for the Allies everywhere they looked. And yet to come would be another very devastating blow, as next week, General Homa will finally bring down the hammer upon the battling bastards of Bataan.